0: This is episode 13 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast with Rebecca Levy. Rebecca is a speech language pathologist currently in the role of clinical program consultant for ACP's synchrony dysphagia program. Rebecca has worked in healthcare for over 11 years. Although she spent the first two years of her career in special education, she quickly realized that she had a passion for the geriatric setting and specifically working with patients with dysphagia. She spent about eight years in a sniff setting, and five of those years she was the director of rehab for her therapy program, but never stepped away from treating. She also spent some time doing private home health and worked on a mobile van completing video fluoroscopy. Rebecca's current role of clinical consultant is probably her most fulfilling, helping to educate other SLPs and helping them to get superior outcomes with their patients. In this episode, we discuss all things treatment. Rebecca provides us with the research behind all of the exercises we should be doing and why, and also gives us exercises to go with each MBS IMP component. Furthermore, all of this is written out in the show notes at www.swallowyourpridepodcast.com. And since I'm feeling super generous this week, I even included my MBS IMP cheat sheet from my blog and added in the exercises for each component. Okay. Just a few quick announcements. This is the last week to take advantage of the Carolina speech pathology deals. You can attend the understanding fees course in Richmond, Virginia on November 17th. That's presented by Selena Reese. And then evidence-based practice in dysphagia rehab with Ed Bice is in Raleigh, North Carolina on December 1st. So go to carolinafees.com, enter promo code SYP for 25% off that. And then we also are bringing back the MedBridge deal this month for November. Um, Since that was such a huge success, so many of you have given great feedback about that. I'm so impressed with the program they've got going on there. And also, if you guys are across the pond, anyone in the UK or Australia, you guys can take advantage of this also, which I know there's been a lot of people over there that have said it's been great. Um, But basically for $95, $95, for an entire calendar year, you get unlimited CEUs. There are so many awesome dysphagia courses in here by about the, the highest quality of researchers, teachers we have in this field covering all disorders. So there's stroke, there's head and neck cancer. There's a whole gamut of, of all different disorders. But I do want to highlight the handouts that they have that if you use this SYP promo code for the month of November, you are automatically upgraded to the premium plan for still that same $95. So what the premium plan includes is tons of patient education handouts and also a mobile app, which is so convenient when I'm driving. I can just put on one of these courses, listen to it in the background. I love that. These patient education handouts are top quality. I happen to know a few of the awesome people that created these, but uh, there's a handout for oral care. There's a handout for aspiration precautions. There's exercise handouts. So how to do a supraglottic swallow, how to do an effortful swallow, how to do a Shakir. Uh, There's handouts all right here that you can print out and give right to your patient so not things that you need to spend doing with beautiful images also so just wanted to highlight that if you guys want to take advantage of that deal i know it's getting to be the end of the year and people need to get on their ceus but it's good for an entire calendar year from the day you set up so Go to MedBridgeEducation.com, select speech language pathology, select the premium plan, and then type in SYP as your promo code. And you'll get all of these awesome handouts and the mobile app for free with that premium plan, free upgrade. So go ahead and take advantage of that if you can. Hi guys, welcome back. I'm so excited. I'm getting ready to head to LA to go to ASHA tomorrow. Hope to see a lot of you guys there. Um, This week's iTunes review of the week. I was dying reading this. I finally figured out how to... Somebody on Twitter told me that how to access all the reviews from like other countries, which I totally had no idea they weren't all on iTunes. So I've been going through reading reviews from other countries, and this one is from... This is from Australia, and this is by Bubble Hippie 77, and I don't know if you're a man or a woman, but we might just be spirit animals, but I was dying at this review, so... Frankly, these podcasts have disturbed me. They are interfering with my comfort zone and making me take stock of the responsibility I have not to be a complacent therapist. Since listening, I have found myself more thirsty for dysphagia-based knowledge and underconfident about my ability to be accurate with hypothesis-based bedside assessments, because I shouldn't be. Since listening, I've been shoving toothbrushes at nursing staff, begging for three to four times a day oral care, and waxing lyrical about the pillars of aspiration to anyone who will listen. listen. I'm feeling like I'm starting to know what I don't know. That's a good thing. Thanks for that. Amazing podcast, Teresa. Thank you. Oh my God. (laughs) That's like the best review ever. If you guys could all just leave really funny reviews like that, it would make my day, but Uh, So today's episode, this is what you've all been waiting for. You've all been begging me for more and more and more treatment and exercises, and we are giving it to you. This awesome girl, Rebecca, is going to lay it all out for you. And also don't forget to download the cheat sheet for this and make your life so much easier. Let's go ahead and get some great outcomes for our patients. You guys, this stuff gets me so pumped. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm really excited for this episode because I know a lot of people keep asking about, we need more treatment. We need more treatment. People think there's like this magical box of treatment techniques out there that no one's talking about, which I have to assure them that there's not. <laughs> it's just <laughs> we've kind of been lost, I think, in thick and liquids land for so long. And now we know a lot more that we can actually do that we don't just have to slap a Band-Aid on everything. So kind of where we're headed with this conversation today. That's great. Yeah. All right. So tell everybody a little bit about
1: yourself. So my name is Rebecca. I currently work for Accelerated Care Plus. They are a company that provide continuing education and modalities to physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech pathologists. I obviously work with the speech pathologists, and we have a device called Synchrony, which is SEMG biofeedback. And so my job every day is I get to go and meet with other SLPs all over the country and provide education for them. You have the same role as Ed Bice, is that right? Yes, I have the same role as Ed Bice. And actually, it was really great that we get to work together because I have learned so much from him. I think everyone that's
0: listening to this is probably extremely jealous of you.
1: (laughs) They should be. Yeah, (laughs) They should be. I get to teach them how to use our particular... particular SEMG device. But I think the biggest thing for me is that I spend most of my time not just talking about how do you use the machine? Because the tools that you use are only as good as the clinician and the knowledge behind it. So I really focus the time that I spend with other people on what is the best way to treat your patients, what are the best interventions that we can do, and how can we use the tools that we have to get the best outcomes possible.
0: Absolutely. And I I just was actually getting pulled into this ESTIM debate with Ed. Mm -hmm. I backed it up a little bit and I was like, why are we even having this debate when some of these people don't even understand the basic underlying knowledge of what we're treating? Right. So I think... We've kind of have to take a step back, and that's why, like, I love what you're doing. I love what Ed's doing, and I do love what some of these e companies are doing. Like, like AmpCare is is one where really getting down to just the fundamentals of anatomy and physiology and cranial nerves, and we have to know why those things are moving the way they are and how they're impaired before we can even really treat
1: them. Right. And actually, I took the AmpCare course. It must be eight years ago at this point, and I think that was kind of an inadvertent way how I wound up getting into the role I'm in now, because we had ACP in one of the buildings I was working for. They had all the e and ultrasounds, and I went and took this amp care course, and I met Ross, and I just, I thought, oh my God, this is the greatest course ever. I learned so much from it, and they just had a ton of research in the manual that you get, and so I came back, and the next time I, I saw our ACP rep, I went up to her, and I was like, look this research on swallowing, look at this research on swallowing, and when are we going to have something, you know, with you guys for speech too? And sure enough, something came around for speech many, many years later, which is this SEMG device, which is user-friendly, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, and I was so into it, which is kind of how I wound up coming to work for ACP. So I consider myself very, very lucky. That's
0: exactly how I felt about the AMP care course. I thought it was just such a great, they do such a great job of just the underlying basic anatomy, physiology, cranial nerves that we all need to know before we can even know what we're treating. So I do just want to take a step back, but I think a lot of people don't really even understand what you and Ed do and what, so let's go back to the basics. So what is SEMG biofeedback? So
1: SEMG stands for circuit surface electromyography. Um, And what that does is you will place an electrode over the muscles that you're looking to have analyzed. And you, depending on the device, you either have a visual or uh, auditory or both signal of the electrical activity of the muscles. So you can use it For pretty much anything. Um, PTs and OTs have been using it for years. And SCMG is actually not new technology in speech pathology. We have over 40 years of research going back as to the efficacy of using SCMG biofeedback. It's just one of those things that I think the technology is finally catching up where it's something that's a lot more practical for clinical use versus use in a research lab.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what you guys do is you hook the electrodes up and then you have the patient do something like an effortful swallow or... Is there different exercises that you guys go Yeah, so or? any
1: exercise that you do that involves the muscles of swallowing, um, the most common placement is a submental or superhyoid placement. So whether you're doing a typical swallow, an effortful swallow, a Mendelssohn maneuver, um, you can see the muscles actually moving. And what's really nice is you can compare that to what that patient's typical swallow looks like and see, is this patient exerting more effort? than they were when they were just swallowing normally. And gotcha. that's really great for the clinician because then you can verify, hey, they actually used more effort versus, oh, I saw their neck you know, clench up and I saw their face turn red, so I think they did an effortful swallow, but I'm not really sure. And it's really yeah. great for the patients because a lot of patients have that same issue. Well, did I do it right? I, I don't know if I did it right. And it's a lot more engaging. I had put in a previous... Facebook post the other day someone is asking you know these some of these exercises seem what somewhat repetitive and I said yes they are you know to be completely honest I think that traditional dysphagia exercises are some of the most boring exercises in the world they're very very important you know this is how we rehab the swallow but yeah who wants to stare at my face for an hour who wants to stare at a wall for an hour saying swallow Swallow again, swallow again, swallow again. So this, having that visual feedback actually gives more input and can be much more stimulating and much more engaging. And there's research into virtual reality where we know that when patients are using virtual reality for exercise, like Wii Tennis or something like that, that they're distracted from the exercise itself. So they'll work yeah. harder and they'll work longer, which is exactly what we need if we want to improve the muscles for swallowing. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and and I think, you know, sometimes we do better when we make analogies to PT or something. So, you know, what does the PT do? They get their patient up and they have them walk for, you know, 500 feet or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's the same thing. Why are we having them swallow over and over and over? Because that's the end goal. right? You know, the end goal is we want to get them independently walking. So we're going to have them walk. We want to get them swallowing. So we're going to get them swallowing over and over again. So I think it's just making that mind switch that, yeah, it does seem boring and repetitive, but that's what we know, all the principles of motor learning and neuroplasticity. And that's what is going to help the patient in the end. And it's
1: so important that we get the right number of repetitions in for a patient Having someone do an effortful swallow five times is probably not going to impact their swallow. Um, We know that we swallow on an average of 500 times a day. So how is doing five effortful swallows or even five good typical swallows going to have any sort of carryover outside of our therapy room for them to improve what happens when they eat? So, we know that we have to get such high repetitions. And actually, I got to hear um, Dr. Klein speak. He's done a lot of research on neuroplasticity, and he mostly works with lab rats, literally, works with. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it was really interesting to hear him talk about all the principles of neuroplasticity. And one of the things that he talked about, he had a physical therapist friend and said, um, the two of them were talking and the physical therapist friend said, you have to be doing something wrong or something different because you're getting all these really excellent outcomes with your lab rats. We don't get the same kind of outcomes with our patients. So what You know, you've got to be doing something different. He said, okay, well, let's take a look at this. And when you look at learning and teaching a new skill to a lab rat, they do approximately, I think it was 175 repetitions of this new skill they're trying to teach them in one hour. And then when you work with monkeys and you're trying to teach them a new skill, they will repeat that same skill over and over almost 300 times in an hour. And then you come and look at people. And when we try to teach them a new movement or a new exercise or a new skill, we do it about 25 times. That's a pretty big discrepancy. So now you think about, okay, well, why do these lab rats get such great outcomes when we do experiments with them, but people don't? Well, I think some of that has to do just with the repetitions.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's such a good point. I, I was talking to a younger clinician you know, and she's like, how many should I be doing? And I said, you know, I don't think that there's a magic number, but I mean, if we can keep improving and improving and improving, you know, if you get up to a hundred swallows a session, she's like a hundred. She's yeah. like, I don't think she can do 20. And, and I was like, well, yeah, we have to keep working. We have to keep taxing the system. Yeah. So maybe you can, I mean, is there a magic number of effortful swallows? Yeah. And
1: it's actually interesting um, that she said that because I probably work with over a hundred SLPs. And I hear that so many times. Well, my patient quits after 12, or I had, you know, one SLP tell me, well, I get kicked out of the room after I ask them to swallow three times. The first thing I say is, well, think about how many times are we swallowing in a meal? I've never actually sat down and counted. I probably should do that. I mean, use <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. little like <laughs> clicker counters. But it's quite a few times. It's probably more than 20 times. And if your patient's able to consume an entire meal, then my first idea is I think they can handle more than 20. They're not asking to stop at 20 because they can't do anymore because they've fatigued. And we know that there's not a lot of research that even proves there's such a thing as fatigue with the swallow. It's probably because a few things are happening. Number one, they're bored with you. (laughs) Right. Mm, true. Again, yes. I mean, the exercises aren't on themselves aren't typically exciting, very important. But I think when the patient just thinks, oh, I'm going to do this a few times and you haven't told them there's an endpoint, we're going to do this many swallows. That can be really hard. I know the same thing when I would go to the gym, you know, and any time that I would work with the trainer or work with someone else, they'd be like, do some burpees and I hate burpees, right? And I'm like, how many do I have to do? And if I knew, okay, I have to do 20 or I have to do 30 or I have to do 15, I could mentally prepare myself for that. And I think it's the same thing for our patients because if no one had said how many I was going to do and I just kept doing burpees over and over and over again, I'd say to her, geez, when am I going to be able to stop this? So for me, uh, one of the things that I think has brought a lot of success when we talk about getting higher repetitions for patients is Telling them, this is what I expect of you. This is not an easy workout. And this is a workout, right? When we do effortful swallows, this is like going to the gym. This is your workout for the swallow. So some of my patients, you know, I tell them, you might wind up sweating and you might wind up breathing hard. And that probably means that it's working, that you're actually doing something right. And we're not going to stop till we get to this number. If you need to take a break, we'll take a break. We'll take as many breaks as you need, but we have to hit this number. And then they're like, oh, okay. And they may complain about it just like I complain about every time I have to do burpees at the gym. But I do them, right? Because they know that that's what's expected. I know that's what's expected of me. Yeah, We don't have a ton of research that talks about number of repetitions specifically in swallow. And for anyone who's interested in research, this is my little plug. I implore you, please try to do some research about how many repetitions is the magic number. We have a little bit of knowledge. We know that... So there was a study done by Gary McCullough in 2012 that looked at high displacement and he had patients doing the Mendelssohn maneuver. Okay, this is an isometric exercise. And what he found is after 20 treatments of patients doing the Mendelssohn maneuver, 30 to 40 times every single session, every single day, they achieved a rehabilitative effect they were able to improve both hyolaryngeal elevation and hyolaryngeal excursion and he also saw that there was an increase in UES duration so This is just one study, right? We would love to see so many more studies, but I think that's a great jumping off point. When I see a good, high quality piece of research come through and it talks about that, I'm gonna run with that until I see something else that tells me something different. So when I make recommendations for patients and we're doing Mendelssohn, I'm gonna say, look, we have to do 30 to 40. And again, we'll take a lot of rest breaks. There are some principles of adaptation and some papers that have come out that have shown these rest breaks. When you take a break and stop doing something, there's this period of deadaptation. And then you have, and then you start the exercise back up, and you relearn the movement, you readapt, and it's starting to show that when you take those rest breaks, you actually get faster, positive neuroplastic changes. So those rest breaks really are therapeutic and very important. So I always love to make my math easy, and I say, well, we're going to do three to four sets of ten Mendelssohns. Very good. Okay. Go. think that's a little more digestible. Yeah. And that's not so much. Oh, 10's not so bad. And then you take a break. You could take a three to five minute rest break. I mean, that's a nice long time. And again, then we're hitting the adaptation principle and also you're allowing the body to recover. So then when we talk about effortful swallows, I don't have any studies like that. But if you think about the fact that the Mendelssohn is an isometric exercise and the effortful swallows, now we probably have to do more. So again, we'll take this over to PT or we'll take this over to the gym where I'm doing crunches versus planks. I have to do a lot more crunches if I want the same results as doing planks that I hold for 30 seconds or hold for a minute. Then you look at some other uh, pieces of research, like Maggie Huckabee's study in 1999, where she had 10 brainstem stroke survivors, or Dr. Crary's research, where he had a group of stroke survivors and a group of cancer survivors, and they were doing effortful swallows for an hour. So they weren't looking at, do I need to do this many versus this many, but it was however many you did throughout the course of an hour. And on average, they're getting about 70 to 100 effortful swallows. So that 100 number you threw out really isn't a base. That's what we should be aiming for. Yeah, I'd heard it from other people, so I kind of just ran with it. <laughs> 100 is a really great number. And again, you think about how many times are we swallowing, on average, you know, 500 and something, up to 2,000 times a day. You really need to get that high repetition in to make a change in the swallow itself. So that's really important. And I like to break it down. I'll tell my patients, we're going to do a set of 25 and take a break. And we're going to do that three times, or we're going to do that four times. So now my patient knows what to expect. 25 is a pretty manageable number. It's really not hard to swallow 25 times in a row. And then the other issue that I encounter is my therapist saying to me, well, I don't have enough time to treat. And I'm sure we could get into a whole other conversation about how... People are begging you to hit your productivity numbers. What do you mean you don't have (laughs) enough time to treat? So I'm sure we could get into a whole other conversation about the ethics of making sure that we are treating for the time that the patient needs versus the time that insurance has said they'll pay for. I'm not going to go there today. Yes, Um, totally fine. (laughs) But what I have found is if you are pacing yourself, this is a really manageable number. We love to build up great rapport with our patients. I'm all for that because I want my patients to want to come down and work with me. But what I've seen is we bring the patient down. Oh, hi, Mrs. Smith. How are you today? What did you eat last night? Did your son come in to visit you? And all this time that we're chit-chatting with our patients, we're really taking time out of the therapy itself. And then we do the same thing in between swallows. And I was very guilty of this. I was not always the therapist that I am today. And I've learned a lot over the last couple of years, but I used to say, okay, we're going to do after swallows. Ready? One, two, three, swallow hard. Oh my gosh, you worked so hard. Take a break. And then we'd sit and wait. And I'd like ask them about the weather and like, if they went to Vigo, yeah. <laughs> and then we would do one more swallow. And that is just not enough. In neuroplastic principles, we know that the speed of presentation is also part of the challenge, and we really have to be considering that. Taking, you know, having one swallow and waiting 30 seconds and then swallowing again is not nearly as challenging as if I'm asking my patient to swallow repeatedly with very limited time in between. So the less time I have between swallows, the harder it is to swallow. And you guys can all sit there out in podcast land and try this yourself. Try to swallow three times in a row without a bolus and think about how hard that can be. So... I always start by saying, well, let's just try aiming for about one swallow every 10 seconds or so. When you first try this, it does feel fast, but once you get used to it, it's really not that fast. That's enough time for not all, everybody is different, but for many patients, it's enough time for them to swallow, take a breath, get ready, take another bolus and swallow again. And If we're aiming for about 10 seconds in between each swallow, you can get about five swallows a minute, right? Approximately, give or take. And then with that, not including your rest breaks, that means in 10 minutes, you're already going to have 50 swallows down. What? Right? The math adds yeah. up. <laughs> and you can do this. I see so many patients. I go in and, you know, up until I'm there, they're doing 20 swallows, 25 swallows, 10 swallows and saying that that's it. And then when we start changing the speed of our presentation and I say, we're going to work fast, we're going to work hard, we're going to do this many. We'll get 50, 60, 70 swallows on that very first day, you know, without even really killing ourselves over it. And the other nice thing about speeding up that presentation is now I'm keeping my patient busy and engaged. And when my patient's busy and my patient's engaged and they're challenged, they're not going to be bored and they're not going to be, they're not going to have enough time to ask to stop. Right, 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 right. I I don't say that in a mean way, like I'm force feeding my patients, but really every time that I stop and take a break, that gets boring. And so this is a really nice way to get the number of repetitions you need and also to keep them engaged in the activity so that they aren't making that request to stop after 20 swallows. Because if I had to take a 30 second break between each swallow, I'd probably give up after 22. Yeah. Do you guys recommend dry swallows then? So it really depends on the patient themselves in terms of the bolus presentation. One of the things, and I think it's been talked about a little bit, are the adverse effects of a patient being NPO. So we know that when a patient is NPO, we're not reducing their aspiration risk, right? Because they can still be aspirating on their saliva, and they can be aspirating refluxed gastric contents. So, making someone NPO and saying they shouldn't be swallowing any liquids isn't doing them any favors. And we know that patients that are NPO and on peg tubes actually have higher rates of aspiration pneumonia and higher rates of morbidity. So when I see a patient is completely NPO, I have a conversation with the therapist. I say, well, let's take a look at that last video swallow or that last fees report. Why are they really NPO? Do they really need to be? Have we talked to the patient about those risks of making them NPO? I'm not gonna make that decision because that's not my patient that I'm seeing today. That's something that you need to talk about with them. But I think that there are probably very few circumstances that a patient wouldn't be swallowing a bolus. Certainly there are some we know when there's no UES opening and there's no swallow reflex present, those are appropriate times to make someone NPO. But aside from that, I think it's going to be a lot more challenging to try to do that high number of repetitions with no bolus. And I think that the majority of the time, allowing the patient to have some kind of bolus is probably going to be beneficial to them. We know that it's going to make them better hydrated, right? Um, Sure, there's always the risk that somebody can aspirate, but there's the risk that I could aspirate. There's a risk that you can aspirate when you drink something, and we have to look at the other risks as well.
0: Okay, so after I recorded this episode with Rebecca, I reached out to ACP because I'm a firm believer that the Synchrony Biofeedback is... Such an awesome, awesome asset to our field. And so Accelerated Care Plus, ACP, the Synchrony company, has partnered with SYP to offer a reduced introductory price offer for November and December. Synchrony is a surface electromyography biofeedback device designed specifically for dysphagia rehabilitation. Synchrony includes engaging augmented reality to help engage patients in therapy. In addition, SYP listeners are eligible for an on-site Synchrony demo and a waived registration fee for three one-hour online ASHA-approved courses. For more information, visit www.acplus.com forward slash dysphagia treatment or call 1-800-350-1100. And additionally, since you all know that Rebecca and I both just love the amp care program as well, they are offering $50 off any of their either online or live CEU courses. It's just such an awesome course with going over all the basics, anatomy, physiology, the cranial nerves, and then also how ESTEM can be such a great tool to have in your toolbox. So you can go to swallowtherapy.com forward slash S Y P to get 50 bucks off either a live or online CEU course. And that's for 0.8 advanced CEUs. So go check them out. So Mendelssohn's you said, so I keep getting a lot of messages. Like people are, re- are
1: recommending Mendelssohn's, but my patient can't do a Mendelssohn. Okay. So this is something that's really hard to do. And I am admittedly spoiled because I work for a company that provides surface electromyography biofeedback. And I think that that's probably one of the easiest ways to teach a person how to do a Mendelssohn is to be able to demonstrate it and to see, okay, this is what it looks like. So when I swallow and try to perform a Mendelssohn maneuver using SEMG biofeedback, it kind of looks a little bit like a chair. I have that initial contraction, which is a nice high peak. And then I have the sustained contraction that is a little bit lower than where the peak is, looks kind of like the seat of a chair. And so I can hook myself up and demonstrate this Mendelssohn and then start teaching the patient in addition to giving them the um, verbal instructions I can say I want you to make this your swallow look like my swallow and it's so much more concrete I think it's a really nice way having any kind of biofeedback whether you're using SEMG whether you're having the patient watch themselves on fluoro or whatever that may be it takes away that very abstract instruction you're giving to them makes things more concrete which definitely will make it a lot easier to perform that task, especially when we talk about how such a huge population of our patients have some kind of cognitive impairment. And we know patients with dementia, visual ability is one of the last skills to go. I'm just giving them that additional visual cueing. Not every And not every patient can do Mendelssohn, which is why it's really nice that we have Effortful Swallow, too, because they have some very similar... Benefits, So I could actually talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. When are we going to do an effortful swallow? When are we going to do a Mendelssohn maneuver? And we know that an effortful swallow does a number of different things. It's going to increase your tongue to palate contact. So we know that tongue pressure increases along the, a wide part of the hard palate during an effortful swallow. Um, if we see something like oral stasis, that might indicate a need to improve tongue-to-palate contact, so effortful swallow is going to be great there. And we also know that long meal times can correlate to reduced lingual pressure, so that's going to be another time that an effortful swallow may be indicated. It's also going to increase tongue base retraction. We know the tongue is, we don't really think about the tongue. We think about the pharynx. We think about the larynx. We think about all that during the swallow. But the swallow really does play a critical role in bolus propulsion through the oral cavity and the pharynx. And Kathy Lazars did a study in 2002. Her study looked at lingual impairment and overall oropharyngeal swallowing impairments after treatment for head and neck cancer and saw some good improvements using effortful swallow. Awesome. Yep, we know it's going to increase hyolaryngeal elevation. I think that's probably a pretty well-known point. It's going to increase pharyngeal pressure, and it will increase the duration of UES opening. There was also another study that showed that it can improve esophageal motility. So it does a lot of great things. If you see some things like residue in the velicule after the swallow residue in the pharynx after the swallow, residue in the piriform sinus after the swallow. Any of these symptoms may indicate an appropriate candidate for an effortful swallow. Awesome. I think that's pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, You know, I really hate when someone says or asks, hey, what do I do for my patient? And they had, they aspirated and now they're on nectar thick. Well, I really need to know more about what's going on. And we really should know, and, and I'm sure you are one of the biggest proponents of this. We need to know what it is that we're treating about the swallow. If we don't see the swallow, we don't see the physiologic impairment, then we shouldn't be treating them. We really need to know what it is. But in a sense, yeah, that effortful swallow is kind of your all around workhorse it does address most of the things you can potentially see in an impaired swallow yeah yes effortful swallow hits up a lot of those it checks checks most of the boxes. yeah yeah yeah
0: <laughs> but I think you know that's interesting that you talk about kind of all of the oral impairments that effortful swallow can help I know when Dr. Steele was on a couple episodes ago you know she was talking about all her work in lingual resistance training and I mean that was kind of like a light bulb moment for me too you know I wrote a blog post about how we really need to be looking at the various impairments. You know, we have 17 impairments in the MBS-IMP, not just three phases. Right. And we think of oral, pharyngeal, esophageal, but we do need that lingual strength, you know, to translate into the pharyngeal phase. So sure. when people think of effortful swallows, I think they think it's just, you know, working on pharyngeal muscles. But as you said, there's a lot of oral components and also UES components as well.
1: So. Absolutely. And Again, if we don't know what specifically it is that we're treating, then how do we even know how to measure improvement or if that patient's gotten better? And it's definitely not, well, they upgraded their diet, because that doesn't mean anything. That's very subjective. But if I can identify that I have reduced tongue-based retraction, and now I do effortful swallows, or I do something else, and I go back, and I can get a repeat swallow study done, then I can see, has that tongue-based retraction improved? If I'm just looking at what the bolus did during my instrumental versus what the physiology of my swallow is, then it's going to be a lot harder to determine, did they really improve? And I think with where healthcare is going and where insurance is going over the next year or so, it's going to be really, really important for us to justify our treatments and to be able to prove that what we're doing truly is improving the patient. Yep, absolutely.
0: Does the Synchrony Biofeedback, does that provide any sort of objective data for improving muscle movement or is it just quantifying you know, the amount that you're doing? or?
1: So there are a number of things that we can do with SEMG and a number of things that we can't do with SEMG. I mean, every tool you have, every instrument you use has its benefits and it has its limitations. So we know with SEMG biofeedback, we cannot identify specific impairments. I can look at the general shape of a swallow and see, does that look like a normal swallow, or does that look impaired? And that just gives me some more robust information in terms of, okay, this appears to be abnormal, but I'm still not going to say that for sure. If I see something, if I do not have an instrumental evaluation on my patient, they come in and I'm doing my clinical swallow eval, then I might do an assessment using SEMG, and that just might strengthen my my theory that the patient has an impaired swallow and might help me justify to my administrator, if you have one of those administrators that doesn't love paying for instrumentals, that might help me justify getting that instrumental for them. I can measure the duration of the swallow, which is really nice. We do have some norms for that. And again, I can look at that general shape. So am I seeing certain things like I can see a swallow and then maybe they re-swallow but it's not going to let me assess the patient. I am going to look at those things, and then I can always go back in another week and see, did did this trace line look any different? So does it appear that they're making progress? I don't know for sure, so I'm certainly going to take it with a grain of salt, but that's really nice considering you can go four to six weeks before you get another flora or another fees, and you don't want to sit there for four weeks saying, I'm doing this exercise over and over and over, and at the end of four weeks, I go in, get my instrumental, and oh, I'm sorry, you know those four weeks that I just spent all that time with you and your insurance company spent all that money, nothing happens. So sorry. Right. Whoops. So that's nice. Cause then I do get some objective features that will help me determine is my patient making progress or not. Oh. So I don't feel as much in the dark. So, um, Teresa, do you want me to talk about oral impairments as well, like lip closure, things like that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would be so great. So we could we talk about 15 of the 17 physiologic impairments. Sounds good. Okay. This is good stuff. Okay. So we'll go through. I'm not addressing all 17 because two of those components do deal with residue. And okay. I going to talk about physiologic impairment only. Awesome. Okay. So the first one that you may see is reduced lip closure. And we know if you have reduced lip closure, there is some kind of labial weakness or labial component. I need to strengthen those muscles. The best one that you can do is straw sucking against resistance. Okay, so you're going to take a straw and you can use increasing thicknesses for the patient to suck against or potentially use your finger to occlude as the resistance. And This is better than a lip press because with the lip press, you have no way to control the resistance. Once you've pressed your lips together as hard as you can, that's it. There's no way to there you go. There's no way to pick up a heavier weight. Right. And we know from exercise physiology, if you want to get stronger, you need to increase that resistance. I'm going to go to the gym and start with a one pound weight for my bicep curls. And after I've been doing that several weeks and I can do my bicep curls, no problem. I better increase to a two pound weight if I ever want to be able to pick something up that weighs more than one pound. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> Just it's- imagining
1: Rebecca and her pink <laughs> two pound weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every, every day for years <laughs> nothing else right and it, and it seems when we think about that it seems so ridiculous that well of course I would go to the gym and right. get stronger I'm going to increase my weight I'm going to increase my resistance but we don't carry that philosophy over very often into dysphagia and we don't necessarily know that there's always a strength component because we don't have a way to measure strength but there are times that you may be able to suspect that there's a strength component based on all the other things going on with the patient. So certainly if you are deciding that strength is a component you probably need to address, then you better be making sure that you're increasing your weight. This kind of goes back to, well do we do dry swallows on a patient or what's the bolus when we do effortful swallows? And so I'm going to make my bolus selection based on what I'm able to see the patient successfully do. And after they have a certain number of successful repetitions of that effortful swallow, I'm going to increase the resistance if I want them to be more challenged. So that may be a strength component. Maybe that's not even addressing strength. Maybe it's addressing something else we don't know about. But I do know that I need to increase resistance and make that challenge harder because, you know, difficulty is a neuroplastic principle. Yeah. So then I may either increase my bolus volume which would require a faster trigger of the swallow or it would wind up with a faster swallow, or I'm going to increase the viscosity that I'm giving to the patient because we know the thicker the liquid, the more pressure is required to swallow it. Certainly, that's really important. Interesting. So going back to lip closure, we're going to do straw sucking against resistance and slowly over time, as that person becomes successful, we're going to increase the resistance that they're sucking against. Um, And again, this is an isometric exercise. So we don't have a million pieces of research that talk about how many should I be doing, but just going back to McCullough's research on the Mendelssohn maneuver, because that was an isometric exercise, then I'm going to start there. That's the piece of information that I have. So at least I have a jumping off point of, well, do I have to do 10 or do I have to do 30 or do I have to do 100 of these? When I am seeing a patient, I'm recommending 30 to 40 when we're doing isometric exercises. Okay, awesome. So the next thing is tongue control during bolus hold. And we also have palate-to-base of tongue contact. And a really great intervention for that is tongue exercise against resistance. A great way to do that is if you have an IOP and i don't yeah. work for the iop company so yeah. <laughs> you know it's not a plug or anything but iop is a really great way to measure tongue pressures and that is something where we can actually measure strength we can't measure strength of the swallow when we're talking about the pharyngeal phase but we can measure tongue strength and so that's a really great tool if you're able to get that i know you guys should all be putting that on your wish list yeah <laughs> so so what if i don't have an iop am i sol no you're not sol you okay. can, you can use a tongue depressor um, you just have to understand again. Everything has its own limitations. So if you're using a tongue depressor, you're going to be guessing how much force you're applying against the tongue, and you do want to use a fair amount of force. But to some degree, you are taking a little bit, uh, a little shot in the dark with that, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, And then SEMG biofeedback is another great way because even though it's not looking at tongue strength, it's looking at muscle activity. So I can see when my patient is pushing their tongue, are they using the same amount of muscle activity on the first repetition as they are on the 20th repetition? Okay, cool. Okay, Um, the next impairment you guys might see is issues with mastication. If there's an issue with mastication, there's probably weakness with the masseters or um, the temporalis muscles, and jaw grading is a really great intervention for that. How would you do that? So that's a really great question. I'm I'm sitting, she's watching me sit here and try to do that. That's actually an exercise that a lot of people aren't very familiar with, is jaw? When we want to strengthen the masseters, a lot of us say, well, let's do some chewing exercises. So we get out our chewy tubes, we get out our gum, we get out things like that, and we bite, 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 bite. This is a bite, but it's an isometric exercise again. So we're going to be doing a bite and hold. Okay. And the reason that it's called jaw grading is because as the patient is successful, what do we want to do? We want to increase resistance. And so we're going to increase the grade of the jaw or how far open the jaw is. So you can do that with bite blocks or with tongue depressors and slowly start increasing the number of tongue depressors that you're using on either side between the molars. Gotcha. Cool. Okay. And tongue exercise against resistance can potentially be another great intervention as well. If we are noticing issues with bolus transport, tongue exercise against resistance can be a good a good intervention. Okay. Okay.
0: So if we're using a tongue depressor, sure. are you holding the tongue depressor laterally? Like is the tongue being moved from side to side? Are you holding it on top? Are you holding it on the bottom?
1: What's... The tongue is a hydrostat. So we can potentially have the tongue work in any direction and we will be working the appropriate muscles. So patients can go up, down, or side to side. The only direction I do not recommend is out because sticking your tongue out really isn't functional for the swallow. And we know that we want our exercises to be as functional as possible so they have as much transference as possible. To improve our swallow. Interesting. So, awesome. Yeah. So also, you know, we I'm sure we all have those cue cards with all the different exercises that card cardstock with the mirror in the center that recommends, you know, all these different oral and swallowing yeah. exercises you could do. And so many of them have to do it say like, ooh, e ooh, e or stick yeah. your tongue out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there's really no time that you ever need to stick your tongue out when you're trying <laughs> to eat or swallow. So let's stop asking our patients to do that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So the next component we can look at is tongue-based retraction. Okay, we talked about that. Effortful swallows are a really great intervention for that. Um, Another intervention we can potentially do is a tongue pullback. So you would be holding the tongue with a piece of gauze and asking the patient to actively pull their tongue back into their mouth against the resistance, which would be you holding their tongue. So Teresa, I have a question for you. Yes, ma'am. Okay, we see a lot of this on the different Facebook boards, but we have scenarios where a patient has reduced tongue-based retraction. And what is one of the exercises you see a lot of people talking about that you and myself and Ed and so many other uh, others of us are like, no, don't yes. do that. And you're not seeing me recommend today. What yes. is that exercise? It,
0: it's the Masako. It's
1: the Masako.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: So why am I not recommending a Masako? There are a couple different reasons for this. First of all, we don't have any evidence that has shown that it improves tongue-based retraction. Right, so I like to make sure that my interventions are backed by evidence. And there was, in fact, one study that showed that maybe it does something. It might improve posterior pharyngeal wall movement, but the conclusion was that more uh, studies and more research needed to be done to determine if this was efficacious. And we don't really have anything since they recommended us looking at it more. Gotcha. The other thing is when we do a masako, we are biting our tongue and anchoring our tongue in place. So when we swallow, we're not allowing the base of our tongue to move back. So it's not doing what we want it to. And even if it is improving posterior pharyngeal wall movement, we have to think about the fact that we're trying to rehabilitate a swallow. We're trying to normalize the swallow as much as we can. And what this does is it is now teaching an abnormal movement. That's not functional to swallow. But based on what we do know about neuroplastic principles, about transference and things like that, we do know that that's really not the best way to be practicing a swallow and to, to be teaching someone to swallow differently anecdotally, I did meet an SLP who was doing the Masako with her patient. She was practicing it as she had him do it. And she said, after we did a whole bunch of them, I went home that night and tried to eat dinner. And it was, it was a very odd feeling. I felt like I had to like relearn how to swallow. Yeah. So in one person's experience, she found that just doing Masakos for one day kind of changed how she swallowed later that night. Interesting. So just an anecdote. Yeah, yeah. yeah interesting. Yeah. So now we can we get into more of the pharyngeal phase. So one component we're going to look at, and hopefully when you guys are either getting your reports or for those of you that complete video fluoroscopy or complete feed studies, it would be so nice to get a report that commented on all of these fifteen or seventeen physiologic processes because it would make the treating clinician's life so much easier because then I say, oh, you've got this problem. Well, I know exactly what to do here. Um, Just my little two cents.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know there's been a lot of debate with with fees versus MBS. And I there's nothing I hate more than that verse word because we're all just trying (laughs) to get on the same page. But just because I'm such a proponent of fees is because it's just so accessible in my state. But I always people ask me, which is better, which is better? And my answer is always My answer is the one that gives you a solid report that you can actually treat with. Sure. Because even though you may think that a modified is the best for patient A and all you get is, you know, they aspirated once and they're on honey thick, there's not, there's not a thing you can do with that report now with that, you know. There
1: are advantages and disadvantages to both types of instrumental studies but they're both good and they're both considered the gold standard. And so if I'm in a building and I only have access to one, that's fine. That's okay. Or if I have access to both, but you know, for whatever reason I don't like the type of reports I'm getting from this one particular company and I can't find another company, then go ahead and use the other, the other kind. That's all right. The important thing is what is the quality of the report you're getting? How much information are you getting from that? And how is that helping you treat your patient? I know that is literally my bottom line with, with everybody. Sure. I mean, I
0: can't, it's gotten to the point that we can't even talk about the pros and cons of one versus the other because we don't have solid reports. Across the board from everybody, so until everybody steps up their report writing game and their interpretations, then you know we can't even have that conversation, right?
1: And there were a number of times, and I won't say whether it was video fluoroscopy or fees, but there were a number of times that I would get a report back and it would say, "Patient aspirated on thin liquids. Patient penetrated on nectar thick. Recommend da 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 da." okay, that's nice that you think that this patient should eat that, but like what the heck happened in that time that you were doing that? Yep, yep, totally. I no, I still have no idea what happened with their swallow. Yeah, not a not thing. Not a clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, another process is laryngeal elevation and excursion, and this is a really big one. I have seen reduced high laryngeal elevation and excursion on almost every single report I've ever gotten. Isn't that kind of interesting? It so is, no matter it who I've sent out for an instrumental exam, they all come back with reduced high elevation. Yes. So my question to you guys is, do all these patients truly have reduced high
0: elevation? And I mean, I'll even be just totally honest, open and honest. And even within probably the last year, I've been so much more cognizant of writing that. You know, I mean, especially... People with fees say some people believe you can see it on fees, some people believe you can't, but I believe if we see a true impairment where nothing is moving, I think it's safe to say... If it's not moving. Reduced. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So so that's really where I've gone with that. You know, I don't say it unless I feel definitively that I can say this is not moving. And that's so. really
1: great. And when I see a report on a patient that says high uh, reduced hyaluronctal elevation, I'm not going to say that it's wrong, but I'm certainly going to take it with a grain of salt. One thing, uh, Bonnie Martin-Harris has speculated that how we can actually determine if there's adequate hyalurongeal elevation. And so what she recommends, and I'm sure that we have, I've never seen a report that's actually taken the time to sit and do this, is you measure the distance from inferior C2 to inferior C4, and then you're going to compare the hyoid bone at re- uh, at rest to the point of greatest excursion and measure that. And the difference should be one and a half times that original distance. So unless we are breaking out our rulers and measuring yeah. that screen, yeah. then I think we need to be really careful about either reporting on it or taking that as like absolute fact.
0: Well, I don't have access to Fluoro, but I'm challenging all of you that do. I want to start hearing that you're doing that. So it would be so
1: cool <laughs> if you been, could. Can you I imagine know. like a
0: radiologist walking by, seeing us with the rulers up against the screen. I know, I know. Everybody's <laughs> like, I don't even have time to push the dang button and give him another swallow, let right. alone get out your ruler and protractor. Right. But, but if, maybe if
1: someone does, right. do it for us. <laughs> right. And then that depends—is your software, you know, one-to-one ratio of the image you're seeing versus the size in real life. So maybe some of you will not be able to do it, or some of you think that this is absolutely a ridiculous thing that I'm <laughs> requesting. But if that's the case, then just be aware that when we report on reduced high laryngeal elevation, it may not truly be so. There is a huge variation in normal. In hyoid elevation, we're talking a difference, and this is the normal range, 5.8 millimeters to 25 millimeters. That's a huge difference, and 5.8 millimeters is pretty darn small.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't believe about. you can see that from the naked eye. I mean, that's what that's a half a centimeter. Yeah. <laughs> Right? How big is? <laughs> I know. What do they say? Your a centimeter is like is your pinky fingernail. We should um, ask our
1: friends so that are hot. listening over in in Europe how big that is. Yeah. I, I don't know without looking at I know, but it's tiny
0: regardless. It's but. really small. <laughs> oh, and then on the flip side, you said up to twenty five millimeters. Right. So that's two so, and a half centimeters. Yeah. So, but then think of you know the, on again on the flip side, we have those patients that are almost just making a pumping motion and still not eliciting a swallow. So even though you're seeing high laryngeal elevation, it may not be doing anything. It may not actually be triggering the swallow. Exactly, exactly. I know a lot of people are, looked at me like I had 10 heads when I said that. So I just wanted to say that again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But when we do see that, um, an intervention, a great intervention is an effortful swallow. And another great intervention is Mendelssohn. We know that both of those exercises improve laryngeal elevation and excursion. Awesome. Another thing we see very commonly is reduced epiglottic movement. And there are a number of different exercises we can do for that. We can do the tongue pullbacks again. We can do Mendelssohn maneuver. We can do effortful swallows. And guys, don't forget about repetitions. That is so important. Also, Shakir's and Chin Tuck Against Resistance has been shown to help improve epiglottic movement. Cool. Yeah. Okay, laryngeal vestibular closure. So when we see that on an instrumental study, we've got a number of different interventions for that. We've got effortful swallows and Mendelssohn maneuvers. Remember that effortful swallow is kind of that workhorse, right? I love effortful swallows. The The thing I like about effortful swallows is even though they may be slightly boring, they're pretty straightforward in terms of the directions I'm trying to give you, and the majority of your patients are going to be able to complete them. Um, I know that Mendelssohn's can certainly be a lot more challenging. So if Mendelssohn's not working, Effortful Swallow can be a great way to go. We also have EMST, or um, Expiratory Muscle Strength Trainer. That's another great intervention for that. And that's it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. I thought I had one more line, but I don't. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> If I have issues with pharyngeal stripping and contraction, what's my best intervention? Well, my research tells me effortful swallow is the way to go. And for upper esophageal sphincter opening, we talked about this. We know that effortful swallows are a great intervention for that. We know from Gary McCullough's study that Mendelssohn's are a great intervention. Again, this is one of the studies, this is the study where he looked at the patients. And after they did 30 to 40 repetitions every day, he did see rehabilitative effect. And tuck against resistance slash Shakir can also be another good intervention to help improve UES opening. All right. So that's that. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So that's everything. Yes. And thank you, Bonnie Martin Harris, for your 17 physiologic processes. You're awesome. You're awesome. <laughs> she is pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Okay. Well, there you have it.
0: So no one can, no one is allowed to ask what exercises they can do anymore. So <laughs> you heard, you heard it all. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming.